Hello and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewan And I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world. And I hope that this podcast finds you well in these challenging times. My name is Umbeke, and Obehi, thank you for inviting me along to be a guest on your podcast. I'm honored. A little bit about myself. Uh, My name is Umbeke. I was born in London. My parents are from Jamaica, so I'm Jamaican heritage. I'm currently in Ghana, and the three connect in many, many ways, which we will unpack as the podcast goes on. I am a graduate of Sussex University. I am a qualified coach. I'm also a qualified yoga teacher. I coach executives and managers, and I've also worked internationally within education as a coach, as a trainer, and as a school inspector. Education is at the core of my very being because I believe that once we have education, one, it cannot be taken away from us, and two, it gives us choices in life and the opportunity to think in a different way that when you do not have education, you are denied um, these characteristics. Education is the key. And it's very important to note that uh, you have those kind of value because um, it is considered as a light, actually, because when you have education, you sort of have a light to be able to navigate this uh, complex and complicated world. So uh, there is a huge importance that we must place uh, on education. All right. Now, talking of education and talking of um, leadership, our discussion today, like I just alluded to in the beginning, uh, is Pan-Africanism and leadership. So now let's look at, let's consider some people who do not have an idea about Pan-Africanism. Uh, what can you tell these people? What is Pan-Africanism? Pan-Africanism is an understanding of the connection between African people globally. So um, a friend of mine called Rosemary Campbell talks about the global majority In terms of the world, African or brown people, black and brown people are a global majority. There are lots of things that connect us around the world. Pan-Africanism is about an understanding of those connections and also advocating on behalf of people who have less understanding, less education, less knowledge than yourself to make things better. So the oppressions that people face in Jamaica are very similar to the oppressions people face in Ghana, are very similar to the oppressions that the indigenous people face in Malaysia. I've worked in all countries, and so I can speak from personal experience, but also from knowledge. If you have a look at what's documented, if you have a look at the experiences of black and brown people around the world, you will see the similarities, you will see the things that connect them, connect us. So Pan-Africanism is about an understanding of how that process works, how that process is played out, and what we can do about it. 
All right, how that process works and how that process works out. Of course, remaining within the framework of education, which, which like I said before, <clears throat> sorry, uh, is something that is very important in our in our in our survival as a people, of course, because without without education, where can we go? <laughs> so it, it's sort of uh, essential in this in this respect. Uh, now I'm trying to be, um, of course, to let my curiosity come up a little bit. No, how did you start? How did you uh, get started with uh, the study of Pan Africanism? Curiosity. I'm a very curious person, and so and my first. During, in the setting of my first degree at Sussex University, at 18 years old, I was blessed to be sitting in rooms with people talking about the responsibility of Africans in the diaspora and what are we going to do about African leaders. And I was 18 years old. I was sitting there just listening quietly, listening to people who had worked with Kwame Nkrumah, listening to people who had worked with Michael Mann in Jamaica, listening to people who had worked with Maurice Bishop in Grenada, listening to people who knew about Fela Kuti, listening to people who, you know, were advocates of Miriam McCabe, listening to people who had followed Angela Davis. And there was I at 18 years old, sitting down and not knowing who any of these people were at the time. I had done some reading, but very little. But to be in the presence of individuals who had worked with these greats, it just made me even more curious and I started to think about the things that connected us as African people. So this 18-year-old, born in the UK of Jamaican parents, was introduced to Pan-Africanism at university, which was um, an absolute blessing because I always say to people that my university experience meant that I ended up with two educations. One that the system wanted me to have, which was my degree in sociology, and one that the Pan-African leaders who I met gave me as a gift, um, you know, a member of Sussex African Students Association, putting on events, um, listening to speakers. Yes, so my, my grounding, my, my immersion and grounding really came when I was a, an 18-year-old at Sussex. That's excellent. That's excellent. In fact, this is uh, also of a, um, of a, of a special importance in that uh, when generally we talk of Pan-Africanism, it's often seen as if it were uh, a main thing, a main argument, no? as if it were only the, the, only the men that fought for it, as it were. But behind it, actually, uh, are strong women, a, a very many, a many number of them, of course, who have participated in the struggle and still continue to participate in the struggle. No? So, yeah, it is very important that we sort of have also this voice. I remember, for example, <clears throat> that I was trying to find this this alternative narration, as it were, if you want to call it like that. So recently, I found a number of uh, documentation and also video. Uh, for example, you may mention of Angela Davis and also other individual mm -hmm. of the feminine um, um, side who have done a lot of work. Uh, in the uh, in the revolution, in in terms of yes. African value, in terms of African liberation, even though to date we are still continuously fighting for it, because as you already know, you are in Africa. There, you should know, Africa is still not free. So the 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 fight for free Africa is a continuous struggle in this sense, and this fight has been uh, both uh, by men. And women. Of course, I'm going to come to this. I have a, a question I'm going to ask you on this later on. Now, let's look at Jamaica. Jamaica, you are from Jamaica. Let's um, 
tell us something about Marcus Garvey because this is this is the guy that sort of plants the idea of uh, of the, the the universality of Africa in the minds of many people. So tell us a little thing about him. Okay, so Marcus Garvey was born in Jamaica on August the 17th. Marcus Garvey was married to a wonderful woman called Amy Jakes Garvey. And together, they built up an organization called the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. And at that time, Negro was the term. Some people now would say, why, why would they call themselves Negroes? Um, but if you place the context of them being in the 19th century, Negro was an acceptable and almost political, politically progressive term for black people. So Marcus Garvey is growing up in Jamaica and he's looking around and he's saying, where are our leaders? Where are the businesses that we own? Um, you know, some of the great sayings from Marcus Garvey are, you know, if you have no confidence in self, you are defeated even before you have started. Confidence is the thing that will take you forward. Africa for Africans at home and abroad. He was talking about African people who had been taken to the Caribbean, taken to the Americas through the slave trade, um, returning home to rebuild Africa, to make Africa strong again. He talked about a United States of Africa where people had the same, I suppose, the same model that the United States of America has. So one currency and, you know, one language and things that would unite people as opposed to separating them. Obviously, there is some misunderstanding of that going forward, because even prior to Africa being divided up at the 1886 convention by Europeans, there were different groups within Africa with different languages and different practices. But Marcus Garvey's heart was in the right place. To date, he and Amy Jakes Garvey have led the largest African organization in the world. And this was before social media, before we had the social media platforms that we now have. He managed to set up an organization which eventually was moved to um, America, where he was more accepted and he was able to run theaters and schools and colleges um, Black-owned dry cleaners and, and businesses that were all Black-owned. It was about Black self-reliance. It was about Black pride. And so Marcus Garvey stands as an icon now for many, many African leaders who followed him afterwards. And he, he clearly influenced African leaders who found themselves in London, a lot of them at London School of Economics, where there was a Pan-African Congress and a series of Pan-African conferences that took place. And people like Kwame Nkrumah, who were who were part of that, were were highly influenced by Marcus Garvey, by his teachings, his famous book, The Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey, which is still available. And he and Amy Jakes Garvey influenced African leaders because here was the man outside of Africa from Jamaica. And, you know, and aside to this is that Jamaica is, has always been a political space. The research into enslaved Africans cites that Jamaica was where the most rebellious Africans were placed. They were placed in Jamaica to see if you could break their spirit. But as I sit here in front of you as a Jamaican, our spirits have not been broken. We have work to do and we continue. So in the legacy of Marcus Garvey, 
African leaders were influenced and continue to be influenced by his work because he stood for a United States of Africa, a self-reliant Africa. We have independence in Africa, but we do not have self-reliance. And for him, the strength of us as African people was about being self-reliant. So the people had to come to us for things, not us having to go to them. Thank you very much for that clarification. Uh, it's true that we have a sort of a limited time to be able to tackle this argument because it's not something uh, to be trashed in a, in a, in a, in haste, actually, because there are, there are different dimensions to the argument of Pan-Africanism and the fundamental idea behind it, you know? It's not just, um, it's not only political. Pan-Africanism is also spiritual. There are a lot of uh, deep meaning to it. Uh, for example, when we begin to look at the fraternity of Africa, of the African people, that we are one, we have a common destiny, and uh, things like that. These are things that really need to be expatiated upon so that the, the average person can understand it. But of course, we are not going to have time to be able to go deeper in this So for today. Uh, of course, we're going to have time to be able to look at some of this issue on, on another podcast. Uh, for example, uh, sometime in the past, I uh, interviewed a professor in Addis Ababa University, um, uh, Professor Constantinos, where we talked about uh, another important value in Africa in terms of, lead, in terms of leadership, which is Ubuntu. Uh, now, when we look at uh, Ubuntu and the idea that Marcos Gave was promoting, it sort of uh, talked about the same idea uh, basically the same idea. It's not, it's not different, only that it was uh, said in a different way. And if we were to go even deeper in that spirit of Ubuntu, we can, we can really travel wide in Africa to understand that this is, these are principles, these are values that are inherent and buried deep in the culture of the people. But uh, a lot of things have happened, like you pointed out, when the Europeans decide to share up Africa for themselves, and continue their exploitation, their miseducation, and do everything basically necessary for them to continue to exploit the continent. And to the point that today, a lot of Africans are disoriented. We don't even know where we are coming from. We don't know where we are going to. Where we are coming from, uh, this, is the, this is the origin of humanity. This is where, for example, a lot of culture have been trying to get it to their zenith in Africa, there was still no anything that we can regard as history in any part of Europe. But these people today are looked upon as semi-servitude. They, um, they don't have a trace of where they are coming from because, like you already said at the beginning, education is everything. If we are not the child of our education, if we are not the one that is narrating our story, telling it according to how it, how it is, then, of course, we leave it to so-called experts that are coming from outside who are sort of miseducated the people. This is where it becomes a little bit intriguing, as it were. Please, please go on, if you want to say something there. So, so, the, so, the, so the saying, until, until, the, until we have, sorry, let me get this right, until the Africans tell their own story, the story will always be told from the perspective of the hunter. And I'm sure you're familiar with that saying yeah, over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, we have to tell our own stories. We have to be educated, understand, do the research and tell our own stories. We cannot rely on the hunter because they will tell it from their perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. People will always tell the story from their perspective. 
if three people see a car accident and they're standing at different points of the road and one is in a building, they will all see different things. With, with, a, with a mentality of, of race, whether you're white, Caucasian or African, you will tell the story from your perspective. We've had the story from their perspective for too long. We need to have the story from our perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. That 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 is a point. Uh, we need to we need to champion the story, and and in terms of uh, the possibility of able to tell our story, we really are not lacking the competence, as it were, because we have a lot of of uh, educated African who can continue. But but of course, then it requires also the courage, because I see a lot of historian, African historian, for example, who are doing nothing more than just regurgitating. Uh, the leftover from the European or the Western academians, you know, and this is really more harm than good to the African people. Uh, whereas we need to uh, look at people like Czech Atadio, who were able to stand up and really defend what they what they what they believe in and what they know about the history of Africa, and everybody was shocked because the Europeans weren't prepared for what Czech Atadio would say about the. The origin yeah. of, of humanity and, and and the contribution of African to human history. All right. Anyway, we are going to leave that aside for now because, like I said, it's not uh, something that needs to be discussed in, in one in one city. We are going to have time to look at it in some other occasion. Now, what I want to look at now is that because the idea of Pan Africanism is deeply rooted among Africa, and here we are talking about leadership. And what I'm trying to uh, sort of Talk about now is um, what do you think? Uh, uh, what what do you think are the importance of Pan Africanism in African leadership, or let put put it this way, in leadership among African people? Because um, by African leadership, I mean maybe I'm referring to uh, people in Africa, but I'm actually referring to people of Africa that might also be living elsewhere. Okay, please go ahead and explain that part for me. Okay, so are we talking about Africa as the continent of Africa, or are we talking about Africa as the global majority, i.e. African people around the world? Actually, I'm referring to... Ah, okay, okay. If, if the question is clear, okay, go ahead. Actually, I'm, lo I'm looking at Africans, and of course, Africa as well. <laughs> okay, okay. So in terms of, of African leadership, many, many years ago the leader was answerable to the people. And so as a leader, if you were put in place, you were answerable to the people. In every African country, every Caribbean country, the people are the majority, and the sorry, the majority of the people are the poor. The majority of the people are not the wealthy. So any African leader who panders to the wealthy and creates policies and practices which favor the wealthy is doing his or her country a disservice. The majority of people in every country are always the poor. So what are African leaders doing to make the life of the poor better? Are healthcare and education and housing at the top of the list because these are the things that poor people require. If those things are not at the top of the list, then, and you call yourself an African leader, who are you there for? 
If you're there for the wealthy, then the wealthy will always be all right. They do not have to suffer and fight in the same way that the poor do. As an African leader, I think that your policies, your practices should be there to make the lives of the poor better. So there are people like Walter Rodney, who is from Guyana. And Walter Rodney wrote um, a great book called Groundings with My Brothers. And he said it's important that our political leaders come down from their glass houses and walk in the streets and see what people are experiencing. Look at their housing, look at their transportation, look at their education, look at their uh, accommodation. If you are in a classroom and there are 40 other students or 60 other students, what you can learn is limited and what your opportunities are will be limited. If you are working from six in the morning till eight at night and earning a subsistence living, your life chances are limited, your food that you eat, etc. So for me, leadership is really about re-evaluating what, what we're here for as leaders. If you are a political leader and you are in a country and you are not serving the needs of the majority, then I question, I question how effective you are if the majority are in the same position or they are worse off than they were before you became a political leader. Thank you very much for that, uh, Beckham. Uh, you see, it's good that you mm, made mention of the fact that in Africa we have had great leader because, you know, sometimes when it depends also on the narration because uh, the narration, the communication sometimes can be everything, you know, because when we begin to say, for example, in this particular channel, we talk a lot, a lot, we criticize a lot uh, African leadership, you no? Know? For somebody who do not understand the basis, it might appear that in Africa, we have never had any good leader or African that just not capable of leading themselves. That is not the narration. The truth of the matter is that when you educate a person uh, to be um, to know the basis of what he or she is doing, then the likelihood that he will be able to carry out the function becomes very high. But when you miseducate the person, no matter how powerful you might be inside of you, the likelihood that you will succeed in executing what you were there to execute will be very, very low. That is the situation that we have in Africa. And if we were to even go inside, looking at maybe some of the uh, leaders, leaders we have had in the most recent time, we can look at maybe leaders like uh, Thomas Sankara, who mm. was, I usually make reference to Thomas Sankara as a good leader. That leadership should be about the people, like you all correctly said, Don. Yes. It should be about the survival of the people you are leading over. And be leader, right. it should even be, 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 it should even be very visual in that you are in front, everybody is following you. You are leading, it means that you are going somewhere, you are leading the people somewhere. But unfortunately, yes. this is not what we see in most of the cases uh, when we look at uh, some of the examples that we might talk about. I don't want to be mentioning uh, countries here today uh, so that we will have time no. to, to, to go forward. But at the end of the day, what we have in, in, in today, Africa, uh, in most of the cases, not 
in all the cases, but in most of the cases, either we just have people who are there representing themselves and their family as a few friends. For the mm-hmm. for the rest for the for the rest member of the population, they don't really give a damn. They don't care. So the people just suffer. So this one yeah. got a part of the narration that we are just incapable of running our system. So therefore, we need help. We need somebody to come from I don't know from Paris, from from London or from New York to come and help us. But it is not true. That is not the situation. We okay, fine. No, can I can I just say? I mean, I mean, over here, many of our leaders are educated in Europe and in America. So the understanding of what other systems look like is already with them. And I am by no means saying that America or Europe have the best political systems. What I am saying is that if an African leader or an African person of influence has left their country and they have traveled, because I believe that travel is an amazing education that you know changes lives. So if you have the opportunity to travel, to see other ways in which people are leading their countries, then you have you have an alternative. You have an alternative. If you choose to, to go down a particular road, you are making a decision which, as I said, may only benefit a small number of people in the country, whereas the majority are the people who need the help and they are always the poor. So what is it that the leader who has traveled, who has had the experience, who often has children who are being educated overseas, what is it that they bring back to their their leadership role that supports the majority? And if they're not doing that, then I question you know, I question the effectiveness of them as leaders. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and if these uh, people that we are here referring to, uh, the so-called elite who went abroad and got educated, which of course we can name a lot of them, because even during slavery, uh, not every person was enslaved in Africa. This will also need to be very clear. Uh, like uh, yes. uh, Shanzu said in his book, The Art of War, there are, there are territory you just cannot attack. There are some yes. order you just cannot obey. In Africa, yeah. there were some people who were never enslaved. So even, That's right. even during slavery, some Africans were also brought to Europe and some of them were educated. We, we know that. So there are evidence in many uh, aspects, in many, in many communities in Africa. Uh, but the point actually that we are trying to uh, underline here is that now that you come to the position of authority, if the interest of the people is what you have at heart, that these people yeah. should be governed in a system that they can be part of. So yes, if they were definitely. governed by, maybe for example, when we allow the spirit of Ubu to become important, where the human yes. being is placed at the center of our collective existence, or if we prefer yes. uh, the, the, the understanding that we will call maybe Pan-Africanism, where our collective survivor is very important in this case, our self-reliant, the food that yes. we eat, we should produce it, which of course is not the situation in Africa today. Uh, so then you will be considered a leader because you are, you, are, you are helping the people to find solution to their problem. 
So that's I, right. I, I think this one will be will be really be very 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 important. Now, because of time too, I'm going to drive uh, towards uh, <laughs> towards the lesson. So, what do you think are the key lessons that we can learn from Pan Africanism? That will be very important. The key lessons remain. You know, we're, we're still on the journey. Africa is independent generally in name only. African countries are still in majority, the majority of them at the mercy of the, the old colonizers um, in a new way. You know, the loans, etc., that tie us to, to other people means that we're not independent. And the belief in self, the respect and the respect and confidence in self that people like Marcus Garvey spoke about needs to be part of how we move forward. My respect in self means that I will not comply with this thing because it does my it does my, my country more harm than good. My respect in self means that I will look after the majority of my people because that's the next generation. African countries have the highest, the highest number and growing of young people in the world. What are we doing for those young people? Where are the training centers? Where are the, the apprenticeships? Where are the schemes that give them skills and confidence to be able to want to stay in the country they were born in and not fly to America or Europe, but want to stay in the country they were born in and build up the country? Where are those places? There are organizations like the African Leadership Academy who have a philosophy where they educate African people, African students at a very a highly discounted student fee and they have to commit to staying in Africa to improve it. That is one model. We will educate you, but you cannot be part of the brain drain. You cannot then pack your bags and go and live somewhere else. We educate you because we need you here. So there are, there are still very many aspects of Pan-Africanism that have yet to be fulfilled, yet to be manifested, but we keep going. But we must also be clear as to what we're going towards and when the point is that we stop. Because, you know, 10, maybe 20 years ago, I asked, when does a country stop being a developing country? <laughs> yes. How do we measure this? Are we, are we forever developing? Yes, we're always learning. But there must be a point when we have developed. And even those who have developed are still learning. But you cannot put yourself into a category of I am not enough and accept that. You must be in a place where you want to go forward you have a, a clear timeline and you measure how you would do that. And if you get there and for some reason you haven't met your own targets, you reflect on that. You reflect on that and you introduce new ways of being. But you cannot go on as you are. It's not. It's yeah, you cannot. Thank you, Becca. You see here, I really uh, want to uh, quickly jit in something, you know, uh, so that somebody should understand what we are talking about here about the um, leadership in Africa based on on pan-Africanism or maybe based on the interest of the local people. Because this is not something that is new, actually. It's just that we have yeah. leaders who uh, who are not really leaders. They are just ruling over people. And they're not even rulers, as it were, because we have a lot of rulers in Africa. 
Now, just take an example. I make this example in most of the cases. Look at the 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 hierarchy of the Oba in Bini, you know, because this one, of course, yes. many of us we know. At the time, in the pre-colonial Africa, the Oba were already sending delegates to other parts of Europe, ambassadors. Yes. Yes. At that time, the Oban of Bini, which of course is the same thing if you look if you go to Congo. It's not like only it's uh -huh. not only in the area of Nigeria. Even if you look at uh, the story of Congo, the Congolese were doing about the same thing. The king of Congo were doing about the same thing. What I really want to point yes. out here is that those leaders, those rulers, if you want to call them even that, they care for the people. Either they didn't mm -hmm. need the European to come in and be maneuvering the people. No, there was economy. They were selling to the people and they were exchanging things. Yes. You get it? The survival of the people were clearly defined. If you even go beyond that and maybe enter... Anyway, the question I, I didn't ask you before this one was going to be about um, the feminist approach to the argument. But before that, I'm trying to sort of clear this part <laughs> that... We are not really, it's not like in Africa we are confused about what it means by leadership. This is where the concept of running a state was created in Africa. When it was created yeah. in Africa, it was nowhere in the world. So it is not yes. new. Yes. The, yes, the, yes. the idea, history, even the idea, sorry, sorry, yeah, even the idea of running. Uh, a multi-ethnic society is something that has been here for thousands of years. Look at the e Egyptians, for example. They were not just one people. They were multiples of different people. This one was also yes. evident in Sudan. In the most recent, yes. okay, not most recent, look at, for example, Idahomi, or you look at ancient Mali. These were not just one group of people. They were multiple people. Because these are people that have been, we are not new to multiplicity to plural culture is not new to us that for example look at this also, yeah please 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 go <laughs> so I, I just want to i just want to add so again when 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 the belgium convention in 1886 carved up africa it meant that people who were living in one country straddled on another country because that's how it was. You have nomadic groups who moved around Africa from, from, from place to place. They were not identified as countries as we know them today. But the reality is that the, 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 the management of those groups is something that predates any kind of council government that Europe had. Africa was managing this, yes? And successfully in many places. So, so it's not that we don't know this, yes. But unfortunately, Obehi, when we look at our past models, what we see is that that practice has not found its way to where we are now in the 21st century for the majority of our leaders. Those good practices that we had, I'm not seeing them in the majority of our leadership models currently. Uh, and of course, that, that is going to open up a different argument, which is why? Because if something has been functioning, why can't we... Of course, I'm not trying to say that every part of our past was, was gallant. I'm not trying to say every, past of our, every part of our past history was, was good. 
of course, people involved, society involved. We evolve by renewing yes. our system. The things that are not good, we just leave it behind so that we can proceed with the ones that are good. That is how every society evolves. The idea that in Africa we just need to copy the West is wrong because we are not Westerners. We are not Europeans. I don't understand why uh, we should just copy everything from Europe. And the worst of all, the model that we are copying of the West are the very worst. We don't copy the bad one and bring it home. We do away with the good one that we used to have, like accountability. Leaders mm -hmm. were accountable to the people, even though they have a lot of power themselves. They were accountable yes. to the people. All right. Yes. You see, like I was saying before, the question I didn't want to ask you now had to do with the feminine nature of Pan-Africanism. This one is also very important because the, the narration, very common narration, is appear as that maybe, for example, ah, it's something that is very new, you know. Ah, in Africa, uh, women don't have to be part of politics. Uh, you are just, we just keep them inside the house, inside the kitchen. That is where they stay. But it is not true. It is not true. It has never been true. It will never be true. In the ancient time, yeah. I repeat again, women have always played a pivotal role in the running of the society in Africa. Yes. And since the human society got to its zenith in Africa before it got to any other part, the, the best model that we can get is in Africa. Take a look at the ancient Egypt, uh, ancient Egypt, for example. The women were not relegated to the background. They were, of course, uh, they, were, they, were, they were in the forefront, just like the men. We can talk of Queen Amani Rena, for example, who just had a front to front with the, with the, Roman, with the Roman army. She, yes. she was, okay. Yes. Now, if you also look at maybe ancient Benin, you know, women have always had a pivotal role in African history. But in the yes. narration, like I, I repeat again, it appeared that women have, okay, something new. We are not used to women having power. <laughs> so I want you to tell me something about the, the, if there is a feminine uh, angle to Pan-Africanism. Please help us educate, educate us on this part. Okay, so we're back to our saying, until the lions um, write their own story, the story will always be written by the hunters. Most of the documentation about Pan-Africanism has been written by who? Most of it has been written by men. And for every movement that has been a part of the Pan-African journey, there have been women in pivotal roles. So as I said earlier, many of us have heard of Marcus Garvey, Amy Jakes Garvey, who he was married to for most of his life as a political figure, was also as influential as he was. If you look at Haile Selassie, when he was crowned, queen, his queen was next to him. For him, there was an equal male and female energy that was going to lead. When we look at the feminine side of female import into the Pan-African movement, we have women who have always been there. They have not always had leadership positions because of the, the idea of many that leaders have to be men. But all of these men, one, have had women beside them. And two, I've mentioned people like Miriam McCaber 
um, people like Maya Angelou, our leadership doesn't always come from political leaders. You can be a political influencer, but not necessarily in a leadership position. We currently have a Nigerian writer called Chimananda Ngozi Adichie, and she is influencing the way people think and perceive Africa and Pan-Africanism in many, many ways. She challenges what we think and how we do it. And in one of her famous TED Talks, where she says we should all be feminists, she questions the idea of females, the way that women are treated in Africa and how the assumptions around leadership and power still come from many and are assumed to be only held in the hands of men. Women are very, very powerful and have always been a part of the Pan-African movement. And they continue to be, but they are not always in political positions. And so in the same way that we recognize the words of people like Fela Kuti, who talks about democracy as opposed to democracy, we have to look at the words of our female writers and contrib contributors like Chimananda, because they are also contributing to challenging the narrative around Pan-Africanism. Ama'ata Eidu, a great Ghanaian writer, challenges the relationship between Africans and Europeans because she argues quite clearly that quite often when Africans and Europeans come together, Africans are left at a disadvantage. So we have African female leaders who are part of the Pan-African picture and who are clearly addressing the narrative and making sure that people's awareness is, 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 is developed in a way that allows them to see exactly what is going on. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, you see, this, this piece in the argument is, is very important because the reason we tell story is so that we can learn from them. And uh, when we when we come to maybe this story of uh, leadership, of model, or things like that, it is important that we continue to remind, especially of uh, of our daughters, that they do have equal right to become participant in everything that is happening in this world. Just because you are yes, a woman does not limit you in any sense. In battle, they go. They have gone in the past. They continue to go today. Yes. In, yes. in education, even, even in spirituality. Yes. It is true, for example, that when you look at maybe some, some regimental religion like Christianity, Islam, you see that the value of the, 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 the iconography is almost masculine in most of the cases. But if you look yeah. at from where this idea is coming from, which again, we are going back to Africa because this idea are coming from Africa. It was not always predominantly male. Because in Africa, no. it had been understood that the masculine and the feminine energy must reign together. So that yes. God is not male. God is both male and female. Of course, That's this is correct. an argument that you don't want to table among uh, many uh, European academia, for example. Uh, of course, those that are very fanatic uh, uh, with, with, their, with their masculine agenda and the, and the rest of it. But the point remains that it is very important that we highlight the importance of women in our struggle because it is not 
it is not a struggle for only the men because this this world is not is not only for the men. Even though it seems to be that the men happen to be in in charge of most of the most important decision, but somebody have to do the part that is not even visible that help you to be there. Yes, yes, and you know your 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 comment about um, fanatics in Europe wanting to present a, a male-dominated perspective of religion or spirituality is also present in Africa. You know, we have a lot of people in Africa who would not dare to accept the female aspects of, of God. And, you know, within, within the deity system, there are, there are female deities. Um, you know, we have um, Heteru, we have um, gosh, my mind is going blank. But there are there are many. There are lots of female energies, and also an understanding that male and female energies run through men and women, and that's another discussion that we maybe have an, have another time. <laughs> but we all have male and female energies within us. So I know my 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 personal experience of going to a Pan African organization in London with a close sister of mine from Zimbabwe. We were told that. As women, we were not allowed to drum because that was not an African thing. And sometimes Pan-African organizations misinterpret history or interpret things to suit their own narrative. And the sister from Zimbabwe who was with me had fought on the front line in the war and laughed because she knew many women who were drummers. And here in Ghana, there are there are specific ceremonies where women drum and there are other ceremonies where, where men drum. And again, you see, we come back to education and having an understanding and, and having the knowledge of those things. Because if we don't have that knowledge, if we don't have that experience, then we will fall into a narrative which is of a single story. And again, you know, I refer to Chimananda Adichie because she does this so well and she explains the challenges of a single story. Because if you only ever see or hear one thing about a particular group, that becomes the only story that you believe of them. And you forget that all people have different aspects to their personalities and to their lives. And so nobody's one dimensional. You may not have seen the other dimensions, but no one is one dimensional. So in the same way that, that men and women perceive each other within limited dimensions, the, the reality is that we're always much greater and much more expansive than those limitations. Thank you. Thank you for that. Hey, of course, you also made mention of uh, uh, names like Angela Davis um, and the rest of them that have made a lot of huge impact in, in, the, um, in the movement in the United States and, and all that. So it is, not, it is not something actually new as it were. And uh, I just want to mention this, then I go forward to the next question. If, if you look at maybe uh, the, the term goddesses and gods, if you go to Africa, you are going to see more goddesses than God, as it were. With me, that it was something that is not new. It's not new that we used to worship uh, this, uh, this, through these goddesses. It's not something that is new. Um, by the way, it's okay. We leave that for now. We leave that for another day. Uh, I want to look at the central message of Gavi, uh, because when Marcus Gavi came out, that he was able to organize Africans across the globe is something actually astronomical as a, as, as, as a skill. Yeah. Um, now, 
many years have gone now since the death of Gavin. Mm. Um, what would you say is a central message that he tried to send to the African people? We have a lot of uh, uh, videos and, and uh, speeches of Gavin in this channel because we regard him as somebody that we must continue to feed our mind about. So, but I'm asking you, what do you think is the central message that he was trying to let the people of Africa know? His central messages are race first um, and confidence in self. And those are, those, that's, that's the simplest explanation. You know, a race first philosophy impacts on everything that you do. If you are a business owner, you will source um, other African-owned businesses to work with, to partner with, to collaborate with. If you are um, developing any, let's suppose you're going into property development and you are in, you're not in Africa, but you're planning to, to move to Africa, your options for who you partner with will range from African-owned, Chinese, Indian, Iranian, and other other groups who are who are in and across Africa, other European groups. You have a choice. For Marcus Garvey, the choice was that if we are developing as Africans, we work with other Africans. And if those African companies are not at the standard that we want or we require, we source other African companies. We do not move to European countries. A race first Philosophy means that race is at the top of every decision that you make. Your confidence, um, for Garvey, confidence, if you have confidence in self, then you are already at the front of your race in terms of the race that you're running. Um, okay, okay, please go. Yes, yeah, so self-confidence self means that when people around you say, no, that's not going to work, or you're not good enough, or I don't think that's a good idea, and you know that it is, that confidence is what will keep you going, that will motivate you. It might mean you leaving friends and family who do not support what you're planning to do. And you have to be confident in self to be able to do that. You have to be somebody who is not a follower. You have to be somebody who doesn't need to have a lot of people around you because what you're working on, you know, will work. But if you have a lot of people around who are naysayers, people who don't believe in you and in the project or projects you're working on, then they can sometimes deter you and, and yeah, make you question what you want to do. So that confidence, self-confidence and, and building that up on those days where you might not feel at your best is a skill that, that Garvey talked about in all of his work. You have to have self-confidence. You have to have the energy the chemicals that come from having self-confidence in your body will mean that you can go forward. So for him, confidence and race first were incredibly, incredibly important foundations to almost everything else that he did. All right. Uh, okay. Uh, though I really have uh, some issue with the with the race part because it looked to me to be a very intellectual, as it were, because now we're going to be looking at Africa as a race and the European as a race. I usually look at it like a, I don't. I, I still have an issue. I still have my 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 problem with with it that I haven't really quite understand what is really meant by by race in that sense. But it's okay. I, I get the point now. Uh, um, in terms of race. Um, Marcus Garvey talked about black people. So for him, race was about 
skin color. He talked about, you know, being black and the energy and power from that. And his organizations were black owned and black run. So it was race in that he, for him, Africa was about the black race. And yes, there are other people who have been born in Africa, but for him, it was about black, the black race of Africans as opposed to any other group. All right. Well, just to add uh, to uh, what um, Baker have, have uh, said, no? it might appear a kind of uh, be, be protectionist as it were, no? but this is what every people actually do in the world, even today. The Chinese care for the Chinese interests. The Europeans care for the European interests. The Israelis care for the Israelis' interests. The Germans care for the German interests wherever they go. So yes. it was natural that Gavi, uh, coming talking to uh, more than 40 million uh, uh, Africans in the world, as it were, as it were referred to, Negroes. <laughs> anyway, uh, Becker have already clarified that, that that was a term at the time. Uh, that is yes. uh, uh, something actually is a term that is actually quite problematic, as it were. No? Okay, but looking at the more than 40 million Africans in the world at the time, okay, it was important that we try to also care for our interest. And if we understand this very simple concept very well, and if we were to take this back home, you see that it fits in perfectly to the idea of Pan-Africanism and to the yes. idea of Ubuntu, which is the people. You cannot pretend to be serving interests that is not you. You are just pretending. You need to, first of all, serve the interest that is near you. In this sense, yes. you that is a leader over a people, those people must be important. They are survivor. How? What is their vision in this world? What is their position in this world? That must be the paramount important to you as a leader. Yeah. Obehi, can I, can I just say just a small point to what you've just said? Because most of us, go through life seeing nations looking after each other. So if I live in a community, which I have done in London, and a Chinese store opens, people from all over London will come to support that Chinese store. They would do that. And people who are observing expect that to happen. If a Polish store opens, people from Poland will come from all over London to support that store. And again, people accept that. And so it's almost ludicrous that when Marcus Garvey said Africans for Africa for Africans at home and abroad, that, that some people saw that as a challenge, as a threat. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. Why would that be a challenge when other groups, as you've stated clearly, look after each other? They put each other first. You know, there's, there are enough statistics about if, you know, if, if, if the pound goes into um, the hand of different groups within the, within the UK, you see how that money circulated. And for most groups, except for African and African Caribbeans, the money goes back into their community. And so Garvey, in, and some say that he was, he was a visionary and he was before his time. But for Garvey, it was like, no, we must put our money back into our community. We must build up our hospitals, our clinics, our schools, our theatres, 
our colleges, our dry cleaners. We must do that. Why would we expect anybody else to do that for us? We do that and then we have the respect of others because we show that we're self-reliant. He was very, very clear about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a powerful idea. It's a powerful idea. Thanks to uh, people like uh, like Krumah um, and, uh, and others who came to Africa, uh, Julius Nerere, for example, with this message. Yes. Uh, of course, now, let's be very careful about the message, that this message is already traditionally Africa. It is deeply rooted there. Yes. But our yes. encounter with the European, let's say the European conquering Africa, sort of change our reality. That is it. That is the thing. It's not that it is new to us. Okay, that is that is clear. Now, with the people like Thomas uh, Yerere, Kwame Krumah, and uh, other other revolutionary, for example, like Thomas Sankara, who understand this basic uh, concept, it is obvious the way that they organize themselves, the way that they organize the people. Because they really see very far, like you were saying, you know, Gavin saw far, far ahead of his time. Yes. Because what Gavin yes. was saying then is still the play reality today if you go to the street of America. Yes. So it is very important that as a people, we care for our interest. Of course, this is not going to be the interest of some other persons. This is true. But who cares? That's... Yes. The European will not. And we don't abandon their <laughs> interests and care for the interests of other people. It doesn't work like that. They care for their interests first. Exactly. So Africa must do the same. We must yeah, build. Exactly. We must build our military. We must make sure that when old people grow up in Africa, they have, for the very fact that they have lived in this world for this so long that they are not old, they cannot do anything at all. They must have some benefit to live to survive. Of course, we cannot yes. understand it, that the, the structure were built like this because the system that we are copying, the, that of the West, of the European, if you like, it didn't design it to be in the interest of the African people. I already explained this before in one of our podcasts, that Africa or the colony that the European had were looked upon as colony. Colony just means that the people and the resources are all of them grouped as resources for the interest of the metropole, which is them. If it is an yes. English colony, the real people are the English. The colony and the land, the animal, every all of them are, are classified as resources to serve the interest yes. of the queen, of the English people. I can understand yes. that. But the point is that if we claim that we have a kind of a resemblance of independence, we don't need to be looking at it from that point of view anymore. Because now we have a people, we have a future, we have a vision. We also need to live. We don't need to, for example, looking at Nigeria, be considering England, considering the Queen of England as a, or considering the English as the real people, while the Nigeria as a, as a uh, almost slave, uh, slave to these people, which was, which was the de design of the colonial system. So these two also need to change. All right, now the question I really want to ask you now, Becker, is what do you think will happen if the African leadership, if the kind of leadership we have in Africa were to be based on pan-Africanistic idea? If that were to happen, oh, Obehi, we would have 
an absolutely new landscape of more, sorry, of improved schools, improved education. We would have a landscape of respect, greater respect for women and what they contribute to the society. With Pan-Africanism, we would see a landscape where the new African trade agreement would mean that more and more African countries prioritized working with each other and made sure that the children who are going through education understood what that would mean for them as they grow older and what that would mean for them and their children in terms of the opportunities that would be there for them. Um, Pan-Africanism would for me, eventually move towards a currency that we could use across the African countries. If, we're, if we are going to remain with a physical currency, if we are going to move towards digital currencies, then you know we're, we're then talking about something very different. Um, it would mean a respect for ourselves and that respect for ourselves and saying no to partnerships that don't do us any good, saying no to relationships that do us more harm than good. When I say us, I'm always referring to our majority, yeah, the majority who are the poor. Pan-Africanism would mean that politically, socially, physically, we would be standing in our power and the rest of the world would be looking at us with respect and be understanding that they have to negotiate with us for the things that they require because Africa holds the almost all of the raw resources that the rest of the world needs. Let us stop pretending that we don't. Thank, thank you so much for that. I know that our time has run out, so that is about all we can take. But anyway, I, I will let you uh, conclude with a kind of a final message if we still have some few minutes uh, to do that. Uh, because we have talked a lot about uh, different things today, uh, from uh, leadership to Pan-Africanism to uh, sort of also some of the most fundamental aspect of Pan-Africanism, which is sometimes even beyond the idea of Pan-Africanism, because now it incorporates our history, our spirituality, everything about us that actually is not new to us. So we have talked about quite a lot of things. Now, to conclude this conversation today, say maybe, for example, somebody just stumbled on this video by chance, because, of course, it's going to remain on YouTube for uh, after today, it's going to remain there for a replay. Well, if the person listening to this just short space, that you are going to deliver so that it can still get the message. What would be your final message? Very short one, go. There are so many elements to African leadership that we've discussed today. And African leadership encompasses the position of the majority who are the poor, the relationships between men and women, and the models of leadership that we bring to Africa to improve it. Watch the video, have a look at how we've tackled some of these topics, enjoy and comment. All right. Thank you very much, Becky. It has been uh, a wonderful time. I really appreciate the time that you spent um, explaining uh, this important aspect of, uh, of our conversation to the people, which is about education, Pan-Africanism, and also leadership. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review overhead podcast. 
and share with your friends who might need it. Ademet Obehi Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.